and welcome. This is episode 269 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Brewers podcast, part of the MKE Tailgate Network. I am James, joined once again by Paul and Ryan. We're laughing at Mike McCarthy. Yes, we are. Uh, he's dumb. The Cowboys stink. Uh, Nobody, they deserve I don't this. want anybody telling me that was a failed lateral play. And no laterals were committed on the play <laughs> because the play was so bad that no one was able to get off a lateral before they were tackled, which is honestly just incredible. Now I feel like I really want to see this. Yeah. I mean, if you want to see a play where a guy really wanted to run a hook and ladder, but uh, was had just a guy blanketing him before he could, then you can you can see it. That's all it was, though. It's so when bad. You, when you run so the hook bad. and ladder, you don't want to throw it to you. Don't want to. Throw a hospital ball, basically. Jeez, <laughs> oh, doesn't work if you do that. That sounds bad. All right. Well, yeah, I guess that that part's not Mike McCarthy's fault, but I mean, Sean Payton's going to uh, no, be coaching I think the Cowboys he, in three he months anyway. That garbage play, and that was okay. Well, Dak can't throw well either, so that that's a problem. Dak's fine. He could have done better than that. Is that what's happening okay. here? Is Sean Payton is taking over the Cowboys? I didn't know this. I don't know. He he's gonna Quite return, possibly. right? But I think uh, the Cowboys lost in time that Sean Payton doesn't have to dance around with the Broncos much longer, right? So hmm. I don't know. That's my conspiracy theory. We'll see what happens there. But uh, we're here to talk about baseball. So uh, a lot of questions this week, as as we mentioned in the uh, call for questions. Brewers signed another free agent, Brian Anderson, although. Uh, some information has come to light as we were talking in the pre-show that makes me much less excited about this. Now we'll get to that. In a I second. can't believe you guys but, didn't know that. That's been like going around uh, since this thing happened. It, I saw it on Twitter and then I went and looked up. I'm like, oh, look at that. That's, but we'll we'll get there. Before we start, though, I want to follow up from last week. So talking about arbitration and teams and players squabbling over small sums of money, relatively small mm-hmm. sums of money. Okay. 33 players filed, okay? How many of those were for under a million dollars? The difference between the team and the player when they filed was under a million dollars. 33 possible. How many of those were under a million? I'm at 30. Yeah. Yeah. Or mid-20s, yeah. Yeah, it was actually 26. So you you shot high because you were thinking it probably was going to be a high number. So, yeah. But, yeah, it's, (laughs) it's... most of them are a very small amount of money that is being fought over here. So, and this was a question on Effectively Wild, and they did a whole really good explanation of it, sort of explaining why uh, this happens, why the sides feel the need to like go at each other like this, and why they don't just say we're going to settle in the middle all the time because that would just encourage people to not file in the same manner that they normally would. So it's sure. it just causes like other behaviors so they they kind of have to go through this dance and i guess this year it's corbin burns and we'll see it, it's still very likely that it settles ahead of time so a, a lot of these will settle ahead of time especially right before hearings is when the next like big batch of them will go is you'll start right. hearing oh yeah they they were 10 minutes from walking into a hearing and they just said you know what screw this we're not going to go through with this <laughs> right so exactly yeah yeah, uh, I, I still have a, a good amount of confidence that this will be taken care of before we even get to camp. So, we'll, but we'll see what happens. But yeah, as as you know, we kind of mentioned last week, this is not necessarily a case of the Brewers just being stupid cheap and it's shorting not. their Cy Young pitcher by $740,000. This literally happens to 30 other guys every single year. So yeah, it is baseball uh, being super cheap and doing that, but it is not the Brewers exactly. specifically. Yeah, exactly. they're part of it. 
you know, they're a 30th of it, but it's everybody. Right. Absolutely. All right. Uh, so we have some transaction news to talk about. Also, uh, remembering a, a very important person in Brewers history. But first, a reminder, you can become a patron and get question priority at patreon.com slash MKE tailgate. We got like 10 or so questions this week from patrons. So uh, quite a queue to get mm. through this week. So a uh, reminder, two bucks a month gets you that question priority. And those uh, apply for both this podcast and the reporting as eligible podcast. Five bucks a month, meanwhile gets you that question priority plus some additional exclusive content, including the minor league extra with Ryan and James Anderson from Rotowire. All right. As I mentioned, uh, kind of a, a sad piece of news in the last couple of days here, Sal Bando passed away this week. He was of course, uh, an important figure in Brewers history in more ways than one. So I, I just wanted to start this episode by sort of reflecting on him, both as a former Brewers GM and, um, Paul, I, I know you believe this as an extremely underrated player before his front yes, office. Days. Absolutely. 100%, which we can get into right now if we want. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's go for it. So, like, let, let's start with the on field stuff, obviously. So, Sal Bando, kind of awesome. Um, and played in an era where, um, it's a, a weird era where, so offense wasn't super huge. It wasn't like the dead ball, dead ball era, but it was not a huge offensive era. Um, and uh, actually, Actually, like not a great. Uh, I'm gonna say a lot of war numbers, and j- just to frame this, um, he was a good but not great defender. He shows up uh, with sort of uh, Craig Nettles a lot in terms of where he is about with his war, but he was a better offensive player by quite a bit, and a worse defensive player by quite a bit. But played for Oakland and Kansas City and the Brewers, not big markets back when that actually mattered, um, and uh, really was sort of an all around good player, the kind that does fly under radar. So um, usually 60 war ish is about where you start considering somebody for the hall of fame. And Salbando was by reference, a, uh, uh, I had it here, 61.5 win player. He was like a 55 fan graphs war player. Like that's borderline legit hall of famer. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was very much ahead of his time and maybe appropriately an Oakland athletic um, because he was a high on base percentage hitter. Uh, he, he, a player, he was, he never really had a 300 batting average, which, you know, in the 70s and 80s, and he played in the 60s too, um, was sort of what people looked for. You know, it was 300 batter. That's a good guy. I think his career high was 287. But he was uh, he, he was a 400 on base guy a couple of times. He was usually in the high 300s. Um, he, uh, in 19, ah, shoot, lost my stats, but uh, he led the league in total bases. There it is, 1973. He led the league in doubles once. Like, he was just a get on base and, you know, hit doubles uh, machine that really adds up to a huge amount of value for for players over time. Um, so, like, the kind of guy you'll never notice except in retrospect, really like an under the radar thing. And the other thing is that we've talked we've talked on this podcast many, many times is we think of third base, uh, I think, you know, commonly as being similar to first base in its offensive profile. And that's just not true. The the third base profile is much worse than the first base profile. Not many third basemen are in the Hall of Fame. Salvando was, of course, first baseman. And uh, he is something like the 20th best third baseman of all time by war, by most wars. Uh, over the time, the 20-year time period he basically played from 1965 or so to 1985 or, or so, he was like the eighth best third baseman uh, of that era. Um, and it was an era of very good third baseman, like Schmidt played contemporaneously with him for part of it so did metal mm-hmm. so did a bunch of other guys um so really an underrated player really 
uh, had he played in a different era with either better sabermetric recognition of his skill set, um, or just you know when we kind of gave more credence to guys who hit lots of doubles, um, he maybe would be in the actual Hall of Fame. Just uh, didn't really thread the needle that well there. Uh, and like didn't quite win an MVP. Like he was second once, third once, fourth once, just like, you know, on the cusp of getting that recognition that just eluded him the whole time. So um, also last thing I'll say about him, uh, really kind of the Brewers, one of their first big free agent signings, they gave him a $1.5 million contract wow, in 1977, which is a lot of uh, mm-hmm. the five year. So a long time, but that's big money from the Brewers at that time period and, and really did pay off for them. He played well for the Brewers down the stretch. He faded because he was old, but uh, he had a 128 OPS plus in his first year for them um, and got on base. You know, he had a 371 on base percentage, played really, really well. Um, so a, a good acquisition who did tail off down the stretch as guys do. But yeah, Salbando, underrated, excellent player during his time frame. Yeah, I really wanted to highlight that last part because that's what Bob Euchre talked about was that that was the, the, the indicator, and some of our older listeners will know this, that the Brewers were getting serious, that things were really happening. They had obviously brought up Robin Yount, and they had drafted Paul Molitor, and there was this group of players you know, you already had on board with Gorman and uh, you know some of these other players that were around at that point, and when they went out and spent the money needed on Bando to do this as part of the the A's diaspora <laughs> post uh, Charlie Finley saying, screw this, I'm not going to try to keep this team together after free agency started. Was was that when the commissioner vetoed the Vita Blue trade too? It's in that era. There was, era, okay. there was a few years of it there because this, was, this happened in the 76-77 offseason. And I think there was a lot of drama the year before. I think that's when Jim Hunter when Catfish left and went to the Yankees, like it's in this time period when that team is getting, you know, which was already dysfunctional, but it's getting broken up and all that. And so, uh, yeah, but, but Euchre mentioned this in his remembrance of him that like, this was a big deal because it announced that the Brewers were like a legitimate real club, you know, that they, that they were going to be a player and he comes in a sort of a year early um, his first year with them was 77 and they weren't quite ready to make the leap yet, but in 78, they were one of the best teams of baseball and just barely missed out on the playoffs. It was just unfortunate that they were in a, a division that was so good. Um, in a lot of other divisions, they would have yeah. made the playoffs. So, uh, it, it's just unfortunate that like the timing of that didn't work, but yeah, he really was important to them in team history in sort of announcing what they were doing and, a key figure also, he went after his career to work for Harry Dalton and worked his way up through the 80s to being the replacement for Harry Dalton uh, as general manager when he retired in 1991. Yep. And I, I want to be clear about some of this because this is not the time to be like nasty and like, you know, I like he's probably not even in the ground yet. So like we're not going to be like speaking <laughs> ill of the dead. But it is important just to be clear about this. Like, he did not have a great run as general manager of the Brewers. Um, It didn't really work out. It wasn't awful. It wasn't actually as bad as I thought. I went and looked. He was the GM from 1991 to 1999. I'm sorry, 1992 to 1999. And he was, they were 20th in wins in that time in a league that was, I guess at the start would have been 26 teams and ended, ended with 30. But... Yeah, so not 
not good, but also not like the dregs. They weren't down completely at the bottom here of all the teams. But um, it wasn't it wasn't a, a big successful era. But I think some of that needs to be like there's some mitigating factors here that need to be taken into account. Um, it is true that they're they're drafting and developing fell off to the point that by the time he left, their farm system was so barren. I think their top prospect, and this was like the first year I was paying attention to prospects, was like in 99, 2000, was Valerio De Los Santos. Yep. And if you remember that. They have uh, more Valerio De Los Santos baseball cards than any other baseball card. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Not on purpose. Not on purpose. That's just who Donruss decided that they wanted to have be the most common common that I got. Wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty fallow there by the end, and... Um, so it, that really didn't work, but I, I think it's important to note that he was also he, in an incredibly difficult time for a general manager of a small market club because yeah. the way really hadn't been shown yet how to win as a small market club. We now know that there's a model here to follow. It's, you have to be good at developing from within. You have to be good at making trades to like acquire young players and you have to get guys signed into deals sort of young so that you can hold them through their uh, their time period. Cleveland showed the way here. Cleveland did this yeah. in the 90s. And I think Milwaukee was trying to do that towards the end of his tenure, but they just didn't have the guys. And this, this came from some really bad draft picks. The Antoine Williamson um, draft pick, fourth overall, and he just never even, even in, in the minors, never really did much of anything. Yeah. Um, you know, like those things didn't go, but there wasn't going to be a huge successful run for the Brewers in the 90s because there just wasn't a model yet really to follow for how to do that as a small market club in the post revenue explosion era of the game when cable money started coming in in the late 80s and blew up payrolls and you have these huge payroll disparities settling setting in that was just going to be hard for anybody to navigate. And so I think we need to be, you know, somewhat generous with him on that and say that, yeah, he, he didn't have a, a successful tenure as GM, but he had a, a really tough road to hoe as well. We should mention, because if we don't, someone else will. Um, he does deserve a fair amount of blame for how the Paul Molitor situation was handled. Yes. Um, he, he, uh, did not, Just he was the not DH, a good, he was not a good stuff, communicator yeah. with that with Molitor. Um, they were very behind in getting their offers set. Uh, the, the just DH thing I know did not sit well with him, and uh, that can I think largely be placed at his feet. So, um, it, it's never good to lose your Hall of Famers for any reason. And Salbando is one of the major reasons that Molitor ended up on the Blue Jays getting his World Series championship, um, and MVP. But that is kind of why that happened. Yeah. And looking at it, like you could say his most successful year was the first one when he still had mostly Harry Dalton's players. You know what I mean? Like he hadn't really made a lot right. of moves at that point. Uh, that 92 team was really good and surprising good. and probably had people kind of excited for the Sal Pando era, honestly, uh, because they put together this team that sort of surprisingly was good and seemed to have good young pitching. And we all know how that ended up turning out for them uh so it, it it went sideways pretty quickly after that but yeah it's a it, it's just sort of a, a tough situation he had a tough place to be and i know that like a lot of people probably never 
forgave him and never will forgive him for the Paul Molitor thing. And that's, I get that, that it's unfortunate, but it probably was for the best for Molitor that he was able to, I'm I'm glad for him that he was able to go someplace and win. That's, that is true. Right. He got his championship by, by virtue of that happening. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, and he was critical in getting it to him. He was a fantastic player at that point. He was the world series MVP. Yes, he was. Yeah. So, it's it's tough. Uh, it was especially a very tough era to to do those things. And look, nobody in the '90s, other than Cleveland as a small market, was really having success. Uh, to my memory, I, I really don't think anybody was doing that. So it was going to be a tall order for anybody. And yeah, it just it it didn't work out well. Right. Yeah, th- those challenges were were there from the start too. And and then you kind of. Like you said, that 92 team, Ryan, I know it's one of your favorite Brewers teams of all time. <laughs> and then that sets the bar so high going forward, right? That everything after that's just going to be a massive disappointment, even though, you know, he is kind of trying to figure out a way to navigate, you know, post-strike MLB and, uh, you know, working within the constraints the C-Leagues had the Brewers working under in the mid to late 90s like that. It was a tough situation for any GM to be in, right? Mm-hmm. But um, I, I can definitely see how, you know, you get off on the wrong foot or rather you you set the bar high and then you get off on a bad foot where it, it kind of just collapses from there. And then, you know, nobody really remembers the 90s Brewers all that fondly, um, which is a shame. But, um, you know, it, it, it there were definitely challenges there. He, he did do some good things, too. And. Um, you know, just should definitely be remembered as, you know, one of the more integral parts of Brewers history, you know, for better or worse. And you can't really tell the story of the Brewers without Sal Bando, right? Yeah, in two very important eras for them. So, yeah, he's he's one of the more consequential people in the history of the franchise. Absolutely. He is. All right. Uh, moving on. Uh, we mentioned that the Brewers did sign another uh, major league free agent. So, hey, that's two, I think, right? It, it's so easy to lose count <laughs> when there's so many. Um, and and it's the other Brian Anderson. So I'm sure we're going to get a ton of those uh, super funny jokes from the team in, in uh, spring training and, you know, the first three months of the season. And it won't get tiring at all. Uh, but Hey, uh, something exciting, at least I thought it was exciting to talk about, but, uh, (laughs) these guys are here to talk me down from that and tell me why it's bad. So, um, (laughs) let's just start with the Patreon questions to kind of help guide the discussion. So our first one comes from Tom hate this week asking, do we have to let this new Brian Anderson leave for the NBA (laughs) finals? How much can we expect him to play at third? Um, so, you know, obviously Brewers sign a third baseman, which we kind of tossed around as, as a possibility, but then, you know, this creates a whole bundle of other questions about what do you do with Luis Urias and, and what does that mean for Bryce Terang? So Ryan, let's start with you. How much can we expect him to be the Brewers third baseman this year? Well, I would like to see him split time, uh, between there and right field, uh, to be quite honest. I think that that would be the ideal is to have him spend a lot of time in right field because I would like to see them open up space and playing time for Bryce Terang relatively soon in the season to let him start breaking in and see what we have there. And that's going to need to be at second base, which would mean that uh, Urias, who needs to be an everyday player himself, uh, would play a lot at third base. And 
So that means Anderson's going to need someplace else to go on if he's going to play on a regular basis. And that would be right field. But I think that honestly, a lot of this is going to be I, I think this this team is going to be more Craig playing the hot hand than any of his teams have ever been. And he's done it a lot. So I, I suspect this is really just sort of more than anything, another guy to toss into the group. If things work out, if it if it goes to plan and he hits like the sort of the high end of the projection, like 75th percentile projection here, he's going to do what he's going to be like a 110 WRC plus play solid defense at third base and in right field and be yet another Brewers player in that. Oh, he's like a, a one to two in player. Fuck it. Right. Like that's that's sort of if everything kind of goes well here, that's what it looks like. And those players are very useful, but they're just not exciting. You don't like throw a party and like get all exciting. If we were the pirate. Yeah, if we were the pirates, we would be making like a hype video for this. Um, I don't know if you guys have been following those on the effectively wild discussion this winter. But the uh, the pirates hype videos for mediocre to very, very marginal players have been <laughs> Ooh, uh, chill. Let's yes. go. They're really, really good. Yes. Yes. So enjoy that. But yeah, it's it's not exciting. It's not something that I was yeah super excited about. And I'm gonna let Paul take in the discussion on this because this is his baby. Uh, but the 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 reverse platoon splits are a thing. Yeah. So Brian Anderson's fine. He's definitely he's not gonna play a ton as the starting third baseman. He's there for versatile man, which he can do. He can play corner outfields and third base. And of course, if you're a brewer who can play third base, you can also play second base. Uh, that's the Moustakis rule. Uh, and of course, you can play first base because it's easy, unlike what they say in Moneyball. So he can play kind of everywhere. Um, and that's what he'll do. He, he is uh, he's kind of an annoying offensive profile. It reminds me a little bit of Urias. Worse. Worse than Urias. Not not that. But, but uh, it looks, for the life of me, like he is a guy with just that, that level of marginal power that when the ball gets unjuiced, it really hurts you. Uh, and those home runs turn into double, and it doubles, and it not hurt Urias as much as I thought it would, honestly. I mean, the, the numbers look ugly if you don't consider them against the rest of the league, but against the rest of the league, it's still really good. But Brian Anderson, it, it, when he hits his top-level projection, is like a 110 OPS plus, plus guy-ish, and he hasn't been that for a couple of years. Um, but he can be good, and he can be versatile, and he he's not a terrible bat. He's okay. But as Ryan was alluding to, like all Brewer signings, for some reason, he has reverse platoon splits uh, over a fairly large sample size. And of course, as we discuss on this podcast frequently, they don't technically exist, except the Brewers seem to be on a one-team quest to prove that they do. Um, so against right-handed pitching, his career slash line in 1,600 PAs is 262, 349, 418, which is okay, especially you know given recent offensive um, games that they've had. It's still kind of annoying to see a 766 OPS be considered kind of okay, but it really is, and he gets on base, which they don't. But against opposite side, he sucks. He, he's 238, 316, 386. And it's just so annoying to like have guys that you can't count on to pound opposite side pitching. It drives me insane. But he's another one. Uh, he is a, a righty-righty masher, which is not a thing, but the Brewers have all of them. <laughs> we do. He, it's going to be 
Yeah. He and Keston Hira can share a corner in the clubhouse yeah. for two weeks before Keston gets traded. You have Keston Hira, who has reverse platoon splits and is flawed in a zillion kinds of ways. But why go get all of the rest of them? Like, don't do that. That's dumb. <laughs> get other people with different things that aren't like that. Now, I know they don't really overlap in positions, but doesn't this make it basically impossible to carry Keston Hira out of camp? Yes, it does. Yeah. It absolutely does. Yeah. And, and to be fair... Anderson can actually play positionally at positions that the Brewers aren't like locked in at in terms of third base and uh, and right field are positions where they could use some help, especially right field is a position they can use some help. And I maybe would have rather seen them go after a little bit bigger of a bat there. But I mean, again, it's a one year deal for three point five million. So like it's not like this is going to cripple them or cause them like grievous harm. It's that's that's right. not the problem here. It's just like this is the guy you decided to get when the dust settled because he was the <laughs> the the cheapest available who wanted to come to Milwaukee. I don't know. Like it's it is what it is. It's fine, but it's just there there were other guys that seemed more interesting. Duvall signed this week and that seemed like it would maybe be more interesting. But then Duvall yeah. doesn't have the the level of versatility, though he can play center field in a way that you wouldn't have Anderson in center field, but they shouldn't. Maybe maybe they thought they were getting former Chicago White Sox Brian Anderson on it and they accidentally <laughs> signed the wrong one. Yeah. <laughs> there's it's a it's a common enough name that it's not just our announcer. It's uh wasn't there there's a there's an one. NBA guy who's Brian Anderson as well, right? <laughs> I think that was was that Birdman. That was, or no, that was Chris Sanders. I don't know. There's probably a Brian Anderson in basketball. I think it was alluded to in the question, was it not? Uh, well, that's more a reference to Brian Anderson going calling NBA games for TNT. Oh, and right, yeah, yeah. Other Bri- announcer Brian, Anderson. our Brian Anderson, yeah. yes, okay. the, the, the pre-existing yeah. Brian Anderson, and yes, pre-existing <laughs> Brian Anderson. Yeah, there. Well, there's the title for the episode. But yeah, didn't mean to do that, but um, yeah, it. They're going to do some goofy things with this in spring training. You just know they are. There's there's going to be some goofiness and like holy cow, there are no NFL players named Brian Anderson. How wow. is that even possible? What are the odds of that? Yeah, that is wow. hard to believe. That is hard to believe. Um, I I was going to make the joke that I was going to ask how long into the season would it take for Craig Council to figure out that he really shouldn't play. Keston Hira at first base and Brian Anderson at third base in the same lineup against lefties. <laughs> but like you said, Keston's probably traded in two weeks anyway. So um, yeah, it it creates a whole bunch of roster crunch things and, and we got some more questions. So I'll just save it for that, that one. Uh, but Logan Inderdahl asking a question that I think you guys kind of maybe touched on already, but Logan's asking, am I wrong to be disappointed if BA squared plays more third than right field? I think Grace is much better at third than our esteemed announcer. Uh, both of you kind of shaking your yeah. heads, Paul. Yeah. yeah, that's absolutely the case. Yes. Brian Anderson should be just what we said, the versatility guy. And Uriah should play every day. He's better offensive profile. Um, he's, he's played it a lot. He's better when he gets more reps. Like, there's no reason to platoon them or do anything of the sort. And uh, you have a guy like Anderson just to move him around for when guys need rest days. He'll get plenty of plate appearances just by virtue of doing that. There's no reason to play him over anybody else at any of the positions that he currently plays. 100% agree. Um, but you know they didn't sign him to sit him. So he's going to be worked in there, especially early on. So you know what's going to happen. I guess the one thing you could say is a right-hander with reverse platoon splits at least gives you the fat side of the platoon. 
So if he's out there against right-handed right. pitchers, that's true. <laughs> like it, it, it does give you that leg up. But the problem is, then you got to like run away from using him against left-handed batters, which is just weird. <laughs> or sorry, left-handed pitchers, and that's just yeah. odd to do because, yeah, like everybody flipped out on Craig Council all last year with the uh, with Keston Hero being in the lineup, and it's like, well, if he's on the roster, he has to play sometime, and he's not playing over Rowdy against right-handed batter, right. like against right-handed pitchers. So what the hell are we doing here? Like I have to get him on the field sometime. He should be able to hit left-handed pitching. He's supposed <laughs> to. Yes. Like that's what's supposed to happen. And yes. we should also talk about the fact that like, who is it? Tom Tango that says that like reverse platoon splits don't actually exist. I don't know if he's ever said it so explicitly, but I actually has said it so explicitly now that I think about it. But right. Yeah. He's basically yeah. said that anytime they do exist, it's because it's a small enough sample small that sample it hasn't, size. it hasn't had enough time to sift out in the wash. And I don't know how true that actually is, but I think there is at least some, there's like a kernel of truth here where it's like, yeah, chances are good that this guy in the long run, if he continues to play and accrue plate appearances in the big leagues would actually be better against lefties. And it would even out, it would, it would tend towards the middle point on that um, over time. But man, it's just, it's tough to see. The big thing too, with, with platoon splits, it's always, Critical to remember that left-handers are about a quarter of the pitchers in the big leagues. So the sample sizes there are always small. You're always going to get small samples against left-handed pitchers because there just aren't enough of them. And so yep. it, it does tend to make doing analysis strictly by like platoon splits problematic. Like it's hard to do. Yeah, and it shouldn't exist just by physics and how they work. <laughs> you, right. Like, like I said, logically, side, it shouldn't happen. You yeah. see the ball longer, and it takes longer to get into you. And like, oh, there's all kinds of reasons where that why they shouldn't actually be, um, but we have now plenty of evidence that they are. So whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's swing mechanics or, or what have you. All right. Uh, one last Brian Anderson infielder question comes from Brock. Bochamp asking the Brewers have so many infielders right now and only a few of them have options remaining how do you see this shaking out through spring training and into the opening day roster so uh, we brought up Bryce Terang's name I have a bad feeling that this this is not good news for his uh, opening day prospects we talked about Keston Hira possibly getting squeezed out Mike Brasso is basically the same player so I <laughs> guess uh, Paul uh, I, I shouldn't say Brussels the same player. He can actually hit left-handers. Um, but, <laughs> but Paul, I guess, how do you see the infield situation uh, breaking down now with the addition of Brian Anderson? I, I think it does push back the kids to potentially start in the minors, and we were hoping to have them accelerated. And I, I think you have to at least view this, like the Anderson signing is a little bit of, you know, now we can now we can push him back to the deadline where we like to push people back to. Um, but more than anything, it just it really does seem to cement Hira not fitting. You know, we were having trouble getting him on before. It's just hard to see how you make that work with any possibility of calling guys up in the future. It's it's not just that he doesn't fit on the opening day roster. It's that he gives you a lack of flexibility to to work in the young guys when they are ready to come up when they finally worked on their defense in the minors and you know get that all sorted. So um, I, I think that's what it comes down to is that these things tend to work themselves out over the long haul in terms of getting guys up. But like here, it just doesn't fit. Like he's got to go. Um, there's just no room for him at this point in time. 
Yeah, I think that that all pretty much uh, tracks with me. I think that the big thing here is that I don't feel like Bryce Terang or whoever is being blocked from the big leagues by this so much. I think that if he hits in AAA, if he shows that he is ready to do um, and play uh, in in AAA early in the season, they'll find a way to get him on the big league roster. Now, depending on how some of these other guys do, how Anderson is doing, how Urias is doing, uh, how um, you know, some of these other guys are doing is going to sort of dictate how much playing time he's able to get, you know, how often he's in the lineup. But I think if he if he hits well, he's going to hit his way into the big leagues relatively quickly. So I'm not so much worried about that. I don't think, yes, right now, technically, somebody like Abraham Toro is ahead of him on the depth chart. But Abraham <laughs> Toro is not going to keep a good Bryce Terang from playing. Like, I, I don't know how many players actually are capable of keeping a good Bryce Terang from playing. I think that if he's hitting, Craig will find ways to work him into the lineup. Right. If, if he is providing value, Craig is going to find ways to get him in there relatively quickly into the season. But it does seem much less likely that he would break camp now with the team. Like it, yeah. it seems like a very natural now they can just go, well, we have these other guys. So we're going to send you down to AAA and oh, look at that. It's May. And now we're going to call you up. Yeah. And we know yeah. how that goes. Like Paul said, his defense suddenly got better, mm-hmm. you know, just a couple of things to work on and, and play every day and X, Y, Z. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on. Luke Roy's suitcase has a question saying, my Cubs fan friends seem convinced that the Brewers have almost no shot at the division. <laughs> I think they have almost as good a chance as the Cardinals. Who is right? And what should my expectations be? Am I too high on this team? You know, I think we, we kind of talk about this throughout the off season and, you know, for a while there, it looked like they weren't going to do anything and lots of hand wringing, but then they, you know, went out, they got Jesse Winker in exchange for Colton Wong. Okay. Could be a good bounce back candidate. William Contreras, that move we've loved. Yep. And I know I said, I like the lineup a lot better just with those two additions and the pitching staff is still awesome. So I don't know. I still feel pretty good, Ryan, about this team. How are you feeling? Yeah, I have numbers here. So currently Fangraph's depth charts, which use zips here as a projection point, have the Cardinals at 46.5 wins uh, above replacement and the Brewers at 41.5. So a five win differential. And that's about as big as you're going to see. Zips always likes the Cardinals more than like Bakota does. Um, There's a weird thing about that where Zips Simborski's uh, algorithms just they they're feeling the cardinal devil magic and have found a way to incorporate it and Pakoda doesn't so and honestly kudos Dan for that for that that's just correct so good work. yeah yeah so uh I think that from that perspective and if you you talk to anybody who does projections they will tell you that like it's a five win swing in either direction is basically like normal variance so if you do a five win swing up and a five swing down for the, or sorry, five swing, five win swing up for the Brewers and a five win swing down for the Cardinals. Now the Brewers are five games ahead of the Cardinals. So, like, they're well within striking distance. They're certainly better than anybody else in the division. Um, the uh, Cubs are at 35.4. So they're further behind the Brewers than the Brewers are behind the uh, Cardinals. Yeah. So I don't know what your Cub fan friends are chirping about. They're definitely not. And, and like, I suppose they could, the, the, they're still within, like, they could f- have a fluke season and, and manage to, to 
be better than expected, but a fluke season probably puts them in the playoff race as opposed to like in the division race. I suspect Picota will have them, the Brewers and the Cardinals right at the top together. Um, Picota tends to like the Brewers quite a bit more relative to a lot of other teams and does not tend to like the Cardinals for whatever reason. Um, and I think it will see some skepticism in the ages of the Cardinals. Uh, the Cardinals are an old team, especially at important positions. Old people tend to be worse the next year than young people at a greater rate. And so I, I suspect <laughs> that's the case. Um, so, and the Brewers also are just never, uh, if you don't pay attention to them, like we, we watch every game and live and die with this team. And they were boring and bad to watch last year, even though they were still actually pretty good record wise in the grand scheme of things. And they, you know, boring seems bad if you don't pay that close of attention to it. If you tune in when your team plays the Brewers and see your team shut the Brewers out for four and a half innings every game, then that's the opinion that you have of them. And so popular opinion is going to be worse than, you know, paying close attention to them. Uh, so, no, the Brewers might not um, be as good as the Cardinals. They're certainly, I don't think, going to run away with the division, but they're still a formidable team. So your Cub fan friend is wrong, but that just is, you, you probably knew that already. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up, we have the question that uh, Ryan has been waiting weeks and weeks for. Uh, he's cracking his knuckles now. Mark Podscarby is asking, where do you believe Mark Adonacio ranks among MLB owners. So last week we talked a lot about uh, owners putting feet in mouths, and we got another one this week with John Henry uh, talking or crying poor when you know the Red Sox have, you know, been more successful than just about anybody. Um, so there, there's plenty of bad and annoying owners out there, but Ryan, you've got notes. Where do you rank Mark Adonacio? <laughs> So I was thinking about this one a lot. As soon as I saw it, I'm like, okay, this question, this is what I've been waiting for. Uh, so I started putting together a bunch of numbers on this and sort of thinking about, like, what is a good way to to think about this? And I, I, I want to throw it open to you guys a little bit here, too. Uh, I basically think an owner impacts the club in three ways generally, okay? Three big categories. Um, first one is spending. Like, what kind of budgets are they going to allow their their uh, club to run? That's the big one. I think it gets, like, a lion's share of the attention. And I think sometimes overshadows what I think is even more, if not, or as important, if not more important, which is hiring. Uh, that you need to bring in the right people, especially the top-line hires, that you need to be right about those and that you need to get the right people in place to do the jobs that you're you're asking them to do. And the last one is sort of like, it's a little more nebulous, but it's more like PR and tone setting and just like the aura that they bring to the club and what they're doing in that way. And sort of, you know, like what they say in public and how they just sort of present the club. Um, those are the three big areas. Can you guys see anything I'm missing there? Like anything that doesn't fit into those three general things that's important? Um, makeup. Like how Except they, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We we can maybe that. Yeah. That might go into the vibes category too. Yeah. If like you want to call the it general that, like vibes like... category. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we could we could talk about that. So okay, assuming you have these three categories laid out, Ryan. What yep. do you think? So looking at sort of payroll, I think it's important to note a few things. First off, the Brewers play in either the smallest or the second smallest market in baseball, depending on how you want to figure that. Um, 
it's either us or Cincinnati. And it all depends on like if you're using metro area or like media market. It's it's either us or Cincinnati. And that is very important in baseball, more important in other things, because so much revenue is tied to that. And I think that if you look at what the Brewers kind of have run for payrolls, um, I have just going back here to like 2012, but um, the last few years, 19th, 19th, 23rd in 2020, 17th was sort of a peak in 2019, 22nd, when they were rebuilding, they were down at 30. So 17 and 16 were 30. And then in 2014, he actually sort of peaked at 15. So had just sort of snuck into the top half. So kind of running payrolls a little bit out of the the bottom third, I guess, is sort of a a standard place for them to be is sort of around that 20th, 20th spot in baseball, maybe a little bit higher in general when they're competing, when they're going for it, when they're competing, that sort of is where they're at. Now, figuring out how they they compared to revenue is harder because baseball teams notoriously hide how much money they actually make so that we don't know and we have to guess at their revenues. And there's a lot of different places you can go for this to get these these guesstimates as to what what teams are actually making. The best numbers I can sort of see, and it makes sense, is basically the, the number I saw was like around 17th in terms of revenue. And it's really important too to sort of contextualize that if you look at the, the the site I was looking at, they were 17th, but the difference between 16 and 25, um, so that chunk of teams right there was basically between 258 and 270 million annually. And so when you when you think of it that way, it's like they're in a they're in sort of a clump right there, and they tend to be in the towards the front of that clump in terms of revenue. And also in terms of payroll. So basically, it seems like he's spending sort of in line with what other owners are spending relative to market, right? Relative to revenues and relative to whatever, they're right around that number. So they're spending about comparable to what other teams are spending um, based on the revenues that they have. So that's, that's a tricky one. And that obviously brings a lot of like debate and um, bad feelings right now. There's a lot of people you can't go on Twitter into Brewers Twitter right now without seeing that, that cheap ass meme of Mark Atanasio because apparently he's super cheap and doesn't pay for players. And so that's, that's the, the running narrative on him right now is that he's super cheap money wise. Do you think that he is spending is sort of in the neighborhood of what you would expect a, a team in this market to spend. Uh, I get him. I give him a C because he spends what I think he will spend, but not what I think he should spend. So like, okay. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's in the classic grading sense of like a C is average. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The, sure. So I think if you own a baseball team, you should spend a lot more than your market dictates, but he doesn't. So that's just what people do and that's fine, but that's a C. Yeah, so yeah, Paul get... Noonan does not believe in great inflation. We have that. Absolutely not. <laughs> All right. James? Um, you know, I was going to say, well, if if he's spending in line in terms of percentages of revenue or whatever, uh, that points to the bigger league-wide baseball problem, right? More so than a Mark A problem, as we've discussed when it comes to arbitration and other things, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess if he's middle of the pack, that's C. So there you go. Yeah. Now, moving on to the hiring part of things, I think he is 
incredible in terms of hiring. I think he's done a fantastic job right from the beginning of identifying that he had a good GM in Doug Melvin and stuck with him. I would say probably the worst thing he, he did was he stuck with Melvin probably three or four two years too long. He probably should have had an exit strategy from Melvin post 2011, 2012. That would have been a better time. But holding on to a, a, a competent GM for a few years too long is a minor sin, I, I would say. Uh, he, he eventually, like, you know, by 2015, they, they had made the, were making the transition. So, um, but he is the one who hired Craig Council. And it was, a, it was a hotly debated move at the time. He hired him before he had a GM. He put Craig Council in place and said, this guy is going to be our manager. They gave him a three-year contract and said, Craig is going to be our manager even after I hire a new GM. And I don't care. You'll you'll take it because Craig is that good. And Craig has been the best manager in franchise history. And Mark was right to do that. I think that history has proven him correct on that. And I think that you can only say good things about the David Stearns hire after that and say, yeah, he nailed that and knocked that one out of the park as well. And those are really the big hires that he's made because I don't think, I think in the Doug Melvin era, all the manager hires were more Melvin led than, than that. But we know that Mark did hire Craig Council because he was very open about the fact that he was doing that. He did. He did. He, those are good hires. Um, I, I, I give him high grades on the hires. He did a nice job there. Um, the vibes I'm, I'm down on right now, but he was also fine in the past. <laughs> he also has the benefit of following an F, which you know also makes your C look quite a bit better on a lot of things. So um, right. I, he's he's not bad. You could do a lot worse at owner. Cincinnati um, is just right there for you, um, and uh, that. But he's you know he could he could be better too. You are allowed to have small market owners who just go for it all. That that is a thing that can happen. Yeah, I think that when you go back to the vibes part of it, like it's more what he hasn't done than what he has done there. Uh, you can look around and it's hard to find owners who've been in the game as long as he have who don't have a big foot in mouth moment. His like, what is his bad foot in mouth moment that he said that they had to expand their payroll to get Andrew McCutcheon? Like that's the one that people hold against him these days, right? Like that's that's his grievous I mean, sin. That's that, most yeah. recent. That's most recent, but maybe you know, um, if you want to fault him, it's being loyal to a fault. So, like you said, sticking with Melvin for too long, sticking with Ryan Braun post PED suspension when an easy, you know, you could have found a way out of that. Um, I don't know. It, it, he doesn't have a huge gaffe, right? I think that right. that's what you're getting at, which I I would agree with. And also just like in terms of them hiring PR people, like they were really good at the PR game for a very long time in like 2005 to like 2015. They really excelled at it in terms of building up the team because you have to remember people that are a little bit younger probably don't remember how bad things were for this team by like two, when he took over in 2005, how like a non-entity in the city they were and just how bad the feelings had gotten. And the idea that they could potentially contend was insane. People thought it was crazy yep. for us, us who were thinking the Brewers were going to break out of this with the Ryan Braun, Prince Fielder, Ricky Weeks era. People that were following the team back then, we were routinely told we were nuts for thinking they could ever contend again. And so that part of it, like, 
they were they were able to, to change that feeling and change that a lot to the point where expectations have really been raised now. And ultimately, I think the biggest thing, and I'm going to say he's probably, I, I couldn't name 10 better owners in baseball than him, like at all. I, I really couldn't. I think you it's hard once you start getting past about four or five. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the, the number one most important thing to realize here is since 2005, the Brewers, when, when Mark Atanasio took over, he took over a, a moribund team, but one that did have a good young farm system that was kind of on the rise and was coming up. The Brewers are ninth in wins in MLB since he took over. They are 1,443 wins since he came here. Uh, that trails the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Cardinals, the Red Sox, the Braves, Cleveland, the Angels, and Tampa. And I think in a bottom line business where like it's about winning and it's about like it's about uh, having success on the field, being in the the top third of franchises in terms of in terms of wins in your tenure, when you're in a in a sport that places so much value on being in a large market and gives advantages to teams in a large market, to be in the smallest market and to be in the top third in terms of wins. I don't know how anybody could say that's anything less than a success. So I, I feel like he's done a good job here. Um, it's not always exactly what people want, but I think the, the proof is just sort of in the results. Like they've been good. They've done well. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think he's possibly also shown an ability to learn along the way, right? Because mm-hmm. he came in as just a hedge fund guy, baseball fan, didn't really know much about ops. Uh, you know, in the early years, you you had, you know, the idea that he pushed for Jeff Supon, that he pushed for Kyle Loesch, that he, you know, mm-hmm. went above the GM to kind of negotiate those signings. But, uh, you know, he, he seemed to learn in the David Stearns era. He, he made that hire and he let him run it and seemed to be less meddly along the way, for better or worse, right? So, um you know, in, in a sport where meddlesome owners can be a detriment, even if they're spending a lot looking at the angels specifically, um, you know, mm-hmm. like that he, he's gotten out of his own way uh, to some extent, too. So I think maybe there's there's some credit to be given there as well. Um, and and yeah, I would definitely agree. There are a lot more that are worse than him than are better than him. And it's always you know, careful what you wish for kind of situation if you're wishing for him to sell the team to somebody else because there's really no guarantee that you get anyone better. Yeah, if they sell the team, the chances are that they don't get an owner who is nearly as good as him. You're going to be lucky to get somebody that is as has run the team as well as he has in this time period. Even with all the flaws, you're going to be lucky to find somebody who who does it better. So That is probably true. Yeah. Everybody who can afford to buy a baseball team is a psychopath, so that's almost certainly <laughs> the case. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And and we got one of the nicer ones. So there's that. You know, he's he's not actively telling us that, you know, he could pick up the team and move it to Vegas. So there's that. Not yet. Yeah, I mean the the threats he did come in, he had some advantages here where the Seelig set him up with a, a brand new stadium that was in, in good shape and they were not gonna have to worry about that. And he had a good farm system. So he inherited some of those things. But like he also came in and 
the first move he made was to extend Ben Sheets and to to do that sent and to sign the biggest uh, contract in franchise history to that point. He gave Ben Sheets what was it four years and forty million um, in terms of an extension, and that was a huge deal, an absolutely monstrous deal for the Brewers uh, in terms of setting fan expectations. Like it was like oh okay, we're actually going to compete now. We are going to try to play baseball with the other teams, which is something that we had basically in the market largely given up on by that point. People had given up on it, and and he turned that around. So that will always be true. And before we move on, I do need to, on that wins number, I need to credit listener Red Venture. He's the one that pointed me in the direction of that and how to find that, which is actually – is pretty good way of doing it just uh using fan graphs go and do the multi-year search on pitchers and then take wins and that's yeah, there how you, you do it so yeah so thank you red for uh for directing me to that number which surprised me the first time i saw it i wouldn't have thought they were in the top 10 for wins under atanasia but here we are yeah it's definitely been you know on top of that uh, one of the more successful stretches in, in Brewers franchise history too. So it, it's hard to, you know, look past that as well. All right. Next Patreon question this week comes from Nick H asking, I'm not sure if this has been discussed on the pod in the past, but it feels like a good off season question. Am I the only one who finds sponsor logos on the pitching mound abhorrent? MLB has said that the only reason that that the ads were introduced was to make good on its agreements with the league sponsors for the 2020 COVID shortened season. Well, it's now 2023 and I fear they're here to stay. I live far from Miller Park or Ampham Field, so I haven't seen firsthand if these are stenciled onto the field or if they are simply used on a digital overlay. But regardless, it seems like it's been taken too far as distasteful as ads in foul territory are. They are easier to stomach than upon the mound itself. I said the area between the foul lines is sacred ground and should not be left untouched by or should be left untouched by corporate greed. My hope is that the team logos will return and displace sponsor logos, but I'm not holding my breath. And Nick, I have bad news for you when it comes to the jersey patches. <laughs> uh, soon ads will be there, too. But um, I guess, Paul, your your thoughts on this, speaking of greedy owners and ads everywhere in baseball. <laughs> uh, it is it is annoying to see ads everywhere. It seems like too much. And uh, honestly, I suspect if we could do some kind of big, huge meta study on the effectiveness of advertising in a baseball stadium based on ad locations, that you would see a very large diminishing returns based on saturation of ads. But I don't have that. And it's all speculation. And yeah, these are here to stay. And uh uh, it's if you are a soccer fan, it's probably not as jarring. I'll let Ryan speak to that because mm -hmm. soccer has had has had ads all over the place basically forever, including on jerseys, um, and, and it just kind of doesn't make sense if people aren't treating the, those things as sacred to do that. Um, but it, it it's annoying to have ads everywhere. Ads are annoying. They're annoying on websites. They're annoying. Um, when they're just in your field of vision. So yeah, um, I think practically speaking that they can be a turnoff and I, I kind of wish there was a way to register them being a turnoff when they're somewhere they shouldn't be. But yeah, they're going to, they're gonna, I think, happen. Not enough people care. Um, and uh, it's just kind of the way these things work that they're going to be there and be annoying. And uh, unless you actually turn the game off, which people are doing on baseball, it, it's going to continue. 
I mean, what's the old line that there's no moral consumption under capitalism or whatever? Like this is yep. Uh, we're this is a capitalist society. This is a capitalist enterprise. They are here to squeeze every last dollar they can out of us, out of their franchises, out of everything. It's why their franchises are so valuable. It's why they you know make money hand over fist. Uh, even though they they then go and lie about it and say that they're you know losing money or whatever, and it's but it, it's it's just par for the course. It's it's part of the deal. Like if you're going to be a fan of sports on any level, this is the thing. Even over in Europe, where they you know they're they're all socialists and whatnot. Um, like Paul said, yeah, it, they put the advertising. If you're not aware, they put the advertising the the main sponsor of the team on the front of the jersey. Where we put the team name or the city, like they put it right there and like in the most sacred space. So like I have a Liverpool jersey and it says in the middle standard chartered. It doesn't say Liverpool on the front. It says standard chartered because that's their title sponsor. So like I'm a walking billboard when I wear my my Andrew Robertson jersey for Liverpool of standard chartered. I don't even know what it is. I think it's a bank of some sort. I think. So I've never bothered to look it up, but like, this is just kind of par for the course. And to, like, I, it would be nice if there were sacred spaces and like, <laughs> it would, it would be nice, but like, uh, man, this is, this is huge business there. This is, this is massive amounts of money. And so I'm like, if, if you wanted the brewers to say like, we, we are not going to do this. Well, now you're just like, allowing other teams to get that uh that revenue right. advantage on them and then you know the payroll like goes even further below where people want it to be so it's it's just it's par for the course in a capitalist society that you're just going to be inundated with advertising even if it's dumb and like paul said like the returns on it are probably hugely diminishing well, it, right you go to the ballpark it's just a blur of colors and pictures you can't remember anything you see if it's that saturated right but i spend all my gonna... disposable income on lucas oil so i got nothing no money left for anything else <laughs> <laughs> there are some really funny ones too aren't there the um like what is the where the kraken play in seattle isn't it climate pledge arena yeah i think it like yeah, there's I some really weird right. ones now where it's like oh you're really taking this to like the next level and of all things like that's good like i i, I have no idea what climate pledged but uh, just some company that's taking advantage of the situation i have no idea but like <laughs> no or you have like the situation. lakers playing playing instead of the staples center or the forum the crypto.com arena and then that crash yeah. happened and it seemed like a <laughs> terrible idea but it's like a 20-year contract or something in those cases and you can't get out of it and oh man well, it is nice when they get hoisted on their own petard a little bit. Like the thing with putting, uh, was it, what's the uh, the crypto that went belly up and the guys go FTX. like FTX was on the umpire yeah. jerseys. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> there's there's oh, something, man. you know, sort of ironic about that whole situation. So, uh, yeah, that, that was a good one. Uh, kind of like to see them fall flat on their face about that. Uh, People may not remember the original name of Minute Maid Park. You guys probably oh, do. You're Enron Field. Enron. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that was that was quite a thing when they were in the midst of the Enron meltdown and uh, they were still playing in Enron Field. That was that was definitely a time. That was weird. So yeah, it is what it is, man. It is what it is. 
as long as they cash the checks after a certain date, they're still good, right? So there yeah. you go. They'll be good for it later. Um, all right. Jeremy Nachman asking uh, another question, just general question here, saying the Twins are the Brewers' permanent interleague opponents, but are they supposed to be rivals? Does anyone feel this way about the <laughs> Twins? I certainly don't. If the Twins were playing St. Louis in the World Series, I'd be rooting so hard for Minnesota without feeling icky at all the way I would if, say, the Vikings were playing the Bears for a berth in the Super Bowl. Why do you think this is compared to even non-city interleague rivalries like Cleveland Cincy or KC St. Louis? Should the teams or league look to cultivate this rivalry more? And what would it take? I think this is a good point because like I, I grew up in Western Wisconsin. So certainly I grew up around twins fans and have no ill will, but even, even in the AL days, I feel like the white Sox were the biggest threat or the biggest rival, but I don't know, Paul, hard to disagree on that. Um, okay. Yeah. The White Sox, <laughs> by virtue of being somewhat close, kind of, but I, I feel like there was not actually a ton of travel between the two. The, the twins are super obnoxious, uh, very annoying. The, the Kirby Puckett twins were a perpetual thorn in the Brewers' side. Um, those teams were super annoying. That damn baggie at that stupid ballpark. Um, <laughs> home, home runs would routinely bounce off the top of that stupid thing, uh, past the fence that was the home run fence, and then come back down into play and not be a home run because rules didn't exist back in baseball at that point, apparently. <laughs> um, and uh, we, there was, there was genuine hate between those teams, uh, maybe not the teams, but the fan bases at that point. And it's, I think, always important to remember that Twins fans are fundamentally Vikings fans who are objectively <laughs> the, the worst fans that we have to deal with. Bears fans are not great, but they're actually genuinely pretty nice and um, have a good understanding of where this rivalry sits and all that. Vikings fans are typical passive aggressive Minnesotan Jags. It's just awful. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm old enough to remember this rivalry being a real thing. It absolutely should exist. It is uh, insufferable. And yeah, maybe it has faded because we don't play them that much, but they travel well. They're actually really annoying at Miller Park still when they come mm-hmm. down to see the Twins play. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that is legit thing, and they should continue to be the rivals. And we should actually work really hard to not ever let them win any games. Yeah, so there are some rivalries that just make sense. You mentioned some of them where it's like, okay, you have the two Ohio teams. Yep, obviously that's a thing. The two Missouri teams. Yep, obviously that's a thing. The two Florida teams. You know, there's those. And then there's the ones that make no sense. Like, I remember initially, I think it was the Braves and the Red Sox were paired. And that was because the The Braves, Boston. they yeah. started there. But oh, like, goodness, okay. But there was no, but the problem is, is not everybody has a natural rival. There's not, you know, Pittsburgh has uh, uh, Philadelphia, but they're in the same league. So like, like things start matching up weirdly and whatever, like you're not always going to have a a, a good natural rival. This one, the Brewers twins one fits nicely. I think a lot closer to the, the interstate rivalry where you have, you know, uh, like the Missouri or the, that thing. I think it fits a lot closer to that than it does. Some of these other really far flung ones that really don't have any sort of real natural rivalry between them. So I think that How dare you disparage Seattle, Colorado. Right. I don't even exactly. Even know if that's one, but that's I'm making it's stuff gotta up. It's got to be yeah, right. Exactly. I don't know. I couldn't think of any. Yeah. Like <laughs> some of them are just like, I'm not even sure who some of these are and what they exactly do. And I'm I'm not sure if some of them, they did the if MLB dropped them because you don't even hear about them anymore. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it used to be that they would make sure to do a home and home 
with your rival. So you would actually have a weekend series of the twins here and vice versa. And that actually like, that's fine. That makes, that makes quite a bit of sense. Now it's like this midweek thing. It's a two gamer, two games here, two games there, like midweek. It's, it's weird. But yes, I, the, I 100% support the, the Brewers-Twins rivalry as being a real thing. It's a little bit before my time. I don't truly remember like having antagonism towards the, uh, towards the Twins. But if I was older, because like, didn't the Brewers finish with more wins in 19... Well, no, 92. There, there's this whole thing about like if the Brewers had been stayed in the West, they would have yeah. like romped over and over. They would have been in the playoffs a ton of times. Um and I think would have would have aced the twins out some too, um, yeah. The the twins are the like all the misery they've had in the twentieth century, where every time they make the playoffs, they get housed by the Yankees in three games or whatever the minimum number <laughs> yeah. of games it is. Yeah, they just get yeah. trounced by the Yankees. Uh, they deserve that for fluking their way to two World Series, where they were like maybe the fifth or sixth best team at best in baseball the year that they that they had, and they fluked their way in that eighty seven team was legitimately they got outscored that year and they have a world series title in a yep. year that they got outscored like it's it's an abomination so they deserve all of the misery that they have coming to them in the 20th first century based on those two fluke world series at the end of the of the last one all right let's turn to prospect talk ryan's favorite other favorite mm-hmm. thing other than talking about owners uh tim braun asks <laughs> Uh, baseball prospectus released their top 101 prospects who made the rankings for the brewers and where do you think the brewers will rank as a franchise ryan okay so bp uh did pretty well here they had four players i'm not going to go over exactly where they are because this is this is kind of you know this is proprietary people have to pay subscription here for this um but i'll say that they had four guys they were all outfielders so you can figure out pretty easily who that is um, between number 10 and number 65. So uh, I was surprised to see some of these guys on the list, to be quite honest. One of them really took me by surprise, <laughs> um, particularly uh, to, yeah, um, I would I would not, I would, just, I would not have Garrett did Mitchell it, on my list. With, did it rhyme with Merritt Gitchell? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll spoonerize it for uh, <laughs> okay. plausible deniability here. Um, yeah, it's, I would not have had him on my top 100 list, but I'm glad someone who knows more than I do does. So that's great. <laughs> I'm happy to see it. Uh, so, yeah, it's and I would think with four guys in the top 100 and legitimately like a top 10 prospect in there that you would think that means that they're going to be in the top 10 systems in baseball this year. And that'll be the first time since 2017 that the Brewers have been wow. in the top 10. They've largely been in the bottom half um, since you know they both graduated out a ton of guys and traded away a bunch of guys uh, in that 2017 2018 window, and so yeah, uh, it's it's interesting. Um, I was actually surprised I went through and looked at the guys who have graduated since they were last in the top ten, and it's a substantial number of really good players and especially good prospects who graduated out like. You had Corbin Burns, you had Keston Hira, you had um, Aaron Ashby, you had Devin Williams. You had all these guys kind of graduating out, even though the farm system was generally ranked down towards the bottom. So considering that they were always kind of ranked down towards the bottom, they did kind of well for themselves in that era. But now they seem to be finally breaking out of that. 
All right, uh, sort of related. Mr. Pinecrest, one of our favorites, asking uh, based on prospects for their prospects for long-term success, how would you rank Freilich versus Mitchell versus Weimer versus Terang right now? And are they great prospects or just the best of a so-so minor league system? Um, no, it's they're definitely a top half system. I think everybody's going to have them in the top half. We already know Eric Longenhagen kind of hinted and his write-up of the Brewers that he had him around 12 at this point. So they're in the top half, um, and BP will have them higher, obviously. Um, I think that if you if you want to sort of rank them, my personal ranking of them would be to have Freilich on top. Um, Weimer and Terang are kind of right there for me. I think those guys, um, they're very different sorts of prospects. Weimer is a much higher ceiling guy. Yep. Terang is a much better probability guy, but I think you sort of, it all sort of shakes out together almost um, between those two. And I'd have Mitchell down on the bottom of that group um, for sure. I know that James Anderson had him uh, higher than I did when we did our ranks last, but yeah, I would, I would have them in that order. Ryan knows more than I do, but I actually, I agree with his assessment completely. I actually have Weimer at the top just because I like, I like ceiling. I like guys who could potentially be like star level guys. And I think that Matt could potentially be that, even though I also agree that there's a good chance he isn't and fails. <laughs> and uh, then I actually, I like Terang a little bit more than Freilich, actually. I, I like Freilich a lot. I think he brings a lot to the table. But I also think Terang's ceiling is higher and that he's also more likely to hit it. So um, the one thing we definitely agree on is that Mitchell's not the best. He's, he's the fourth of this group. He, of course, has some interesting tools, but he's likely a fourth-ish outfielder guy more than anything else. And yeah, that's my two cents. Yeah, he gives Mitchell gives me extreme Brett Phillips vibes. And yeah, all the, I, I totally get that. That's a great comp. All the good and bad that goes with that. And Brett Phillips has been a guy who's been around the majors and has been valuable. And like, there's nothing wrong with Brett Phillips. But there's also just sort of a, a limitation on how high necessarily you think that's going to go. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's an interesting system. It's really nice to see them having a bunch of guys who are so close because all these guys are going to play in. Everybody we've mentioned here is going to play in AAA at the lowest opening this year. They will all open right. in either AAA or the majors. So every one of these guys is knocking on the door and they're sort of all fighting each other for for playing time. Yeah. So that part of it is also kind of nice where it's like. It's going to be a meritocracy to an extent here. If you play well, I think you're going to get playing time, at least in, in the short term here. And then they're going to need to sort it out. Like they, they are going to need to decide who they're going to kind of stick with and who they can kind of trade and hopefully make the right calls on that. That was something David Stearns was excellent at. His calls on who to trade and who to hold were almost impeccable. Like you, it's hard to really argue with just about anything that he did in that way, other than maybe like if he had had a crystal ball, he could have dealt, say, Keston Hira after the 2019 season. But we would have all melted down about that <laughs> thinking, oh, my God, what in the hell are you doing? Yeah, you just great. traded away our franchise cornerstone power bat. And, you know, so that's actually probably a big part of why it, it was never going to happen even if they had said <laughs> right we're worried about him making contact that was never going to happen no typical cheap brewers typical cheap right. brewers. uh 
last Patreon question and comments for this week. Let's start with uh, my only lemonade. Uh, this was the second question they submitted, but I'll just start uh, saying, I just noticed the MKE tailgate logo fashions the iconic Brewers beer barrel into a podcast. Mike, no question here, just a compliment. Well done. <laughs> a nifty piece of graphical work indeed. Uh, so thank you for that. But then the question, uh, Freilich's ranking in Baseball America's prospect list has me impatient for his arrival. On the other hand, Garrett Mitchell's projection as an everyday outfielder annoys me. He seems like the sort of <laughs> Logan Schaefer type that is destined to become a trivia question. And as this podcast has pointed out, the periphery batting numbers support my impression. If it's possible, I'd love to know what the Brewers see in Mitchell's future. What's his ceiling? Or is he simply a placeholder to allow the front office to perform service time shenanigans on Freilich? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that's not he's that's not what what this is about. He legitimately earned his call up to the big leagues last year by putting up a good like six week run in AAA, um, sort of in the the late summer. Uh, he legitimately earned that call up, and he was able to do some things and provide a spark to the Brewers at times late in the season. And I think there are a lot of people that have higher opinions. The people that listen to this show and look at his numbers and know that like strikeout rate is a, a a real thing to watch for especially for young players making the leap to the big leagues are going to be skeptical. But a lot of general fan interest here is they like Mitchell. Mitchell is there's good vibes around Mitchell because he came up big in some spots late in the season. So uh, I think that he is going to get the first run, and I think that's perfectly appropriate. I have no real issue with that. I think that one thing that he has, like the Logan Schaefer, we've already comped him more to Brett Phillips. The things he has going for him is he definitely has more power than Logan Schaefer because Logan Schaefer had none, like none, no power. Um, but also, like Mitchell's a legitimate, really good defensive center fielder, like really, really good defensive center fielder. And that gives him a lot of value. It's the same way Brett Phillips had value because he was a really good defender in center field. So... That does provide some thing to work with here. And if he does, I, I will say this for Mitchell. There is the possibility that at some point he figures out with his swing and his approach um, that he needs to start attacking more baseballs and starting to um, look to, to hit for some more power. And if he can do that and like the strikeout rate can come down to a more reasonable level, I think that you could actually have a legitimately very good player in Mitchell. I just think that it's going to be hard because we know that the contact issues are there. And I don't think there's a huge probability that he does fix his swing. I think if he hasn't done it by now, it, it becomes less and less likely. It's possible. Yep. It's possible. But to orient his swing more for like a big league approach as opposed to the, the UCLA swing thing. Yeah, that's going to have to get fixed. It just will. Maybe yeah. speed becomes super important for realsies, and then he's super valuable. Also possible, not very likely. Yeah, even so, he would have to steal at such a high rate to have the value. <laughs> he sure and, would. Yeah, you can't steal first, right? And, and that, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a tough needle to thread. That power to cut down strike rate, strikeout rate ratio you're talking about. Right. Yes, to swing for more power and to strike out less. Yeah, not, that's not a thing <laughs> right. that many people have done. It's it is very much trying to thread a needle. So, yeah, unlikely, but there, the possibility exists because he does have some really loud tools. There, he has some real talent to work with. So, the possibility exists. 
yeah, I, I just pencil him in as as a fun guy to have on the roster as long as you don't expect him to do anything. And then you can be pleasantly surprised when he comes up with a walk-off hit. So there you mm-hmm. go. All right, uh, quick Twitter question this week before we wrap things up here. It comes from Jeff Arnold asking, Feet to fire, does Christian Yelich make another NL All-Star team during the term of his Brewers contract? Paul, feet to fire. Uh, if I mean, if you let me into the clubhouse, sure, yes. Yes. Absolutely. But exactly. no, since they probably won't. <laughs> um, I'm going to say yes here. That Because to make an all-star team, what you really have to do, for if you're Christian Yelich and you have the baseline skills that Christian Yelich has, is you have to have a power spike for like six weeks. You have to have get on a hot run where you pop like 15 home runs in a first half and just have just have a little bit of a hot streak for a while. And I think that that is certainly possible that he does that. And then the rest of the numbers, everything looks good. And it would also be a story. People would be like, oh, Christian Yelich redemption and that sort of thing. So I think that it is, it is very, I'm going to say that, yes, it is going to happen because where he's at right now is sort of a two to three win player is not that far where you basically you're, you are just like a good first half from, from being an all-star at that point. So yeah, I think he does. But sure. I don't. He's got the name recognition too. That's sort of important in that mm-hmm. aspect, right? Yeah, to like win a fan vote, he's the kind of guy who can win a fan vote. Sure, and outfield is tough though. I was going to take the the technicality way out and just say, well, the contract he's on now is a Brewers contract, but you know <laughs> the contract could still be the Brewers contract that they gave him when he's playing for the Phillies and and making an all-star team or something. I don't know. Uh, It it just doesn't seem likely. I think the ship sailed. It sucks. But yeah, like Ryan said, maybe he can get a Brian LaHare spot. There you go. Mm -hmm. All right. uh, Reminder, question priority goes to patrons at patreon.com slash MKE tailgate. When you sign up, you also get a shout out here on the show. And we got a few people to uh, give thanks to this week. Ryan, who do we have? I think we already mentioned Tyler Gibson. Pretty sure we did. But just in case we didn't, uh, Tyler Gibson, thank you. Uh, Brock Bochamp, thank you very much. And uh, also, uh, it's very important here, the, the number value of this is critical. Uh, we have Dutch boy number five. So oh. not not Dutch boy number four or Dutch boy number six, who I probably no. subscribe to other podcasts, but Dutch boy number five <laughs> is uh, <laughs> subscribing to us. So we, we thank you, Dutch boy number five, um, with your finger stuck in a dike somewhere like holding back the the sea we we appreciate it or i guess wait the dutch boy would actually be paint right yes that's a brand of paint yes that is paint yeah well but still like the, it was wait i'm i'm right about this though it was the dutch kid who sticks you his are finger right. yeah, yes, yeah yeah that is the little dutch boy that's yeah, correct okay. also okay yeah so I'm, I'm i've got my my mythology straight here all right all right i just want to know where dutch boys 1 through 4 are um but you know Maybe they're just hanging out in in the um, you know Discord chat for reporting as eligible instead. I don't know. No, but thank you. Uh, they're monitoring Hank's one through three's activities. Oh, for sure. Yep. Okay. Uh, so thank you all of those who signed up. Reminder: Patreon.com/slash/mke/tailgate. Two bucks a month gets you that question priority. Five bucks a month gets you those question uh, priority in in both podcast as well as the uh minor league extra podcast lots of minor leaguer stuff to talk about uh beyond what we talked about this week so be sure to sign up there as well and before we go this week 
Uh, we'd like to ask you to leave a review and rating for this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And as promised, Paul will read literally anything you write in a review if you give us five stars. And Paul, looks like we might have one this week. What do we got? All right. So uh, from Peeballweg, uh, he writes, Enjoyable. I am not one for writing reviews. That's it. Ah, uh, thank you very much. That's that's great. To the point. Short to the point. Five stars. Perfect. Uh, I give you five stars for that review. Mm-hmm. Brevity is the soul of wit. There we go. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review, help us uh, you know, uh, up in the algorithm and, and what have you. And while you're there, please do hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast platform of choice, whether that is Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, wherever else you get your podcasts. We would greatly appreciate you following along uh, just to make sure you don't miss an episode. So uh, that'll do it for this week here. Uh, we'll wrap things up and... and uh, plan to get back together next time as we get ever closer actually to pitchers and catchers reporting uh it's kind of weird to think about but less than a month to go so soon. Mm-hmm. yes very soon very soon uh i look forward to all the the grainy photos from spring training and, and all that stuff but uh in the meantime uh maybe the brewers will sign another you know minor major league free agent and we can spend some time talking about that but thank you for listening everybody we'll get back to you next time here on the walkies tailgate can't wait for that pitcher's fielding practice. Oh, yeah. Woo!